Chapter Seven of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The next morning there was a crowd gathered before the Cullen Building when Walton arrived. There must have been at least a hundred people fanning out from a central focus. Walton stepped from the jet bus and, with collar pulled up carefully to obscure as much of his face as possible, went to investigate. A small, red-faced man stood on a rickety chair against the side of the building. He was flanked by a pair of brass flagpoles, one bearing the American flag, and the other the ensign of the United Nations. His voice was a biting rasp, probably, thought Walton, intensified, sharpened, and made more irritating by a harmonic modulator at his throat. An irritating voice put its message across twice as fast as a pleasant one. He was shouting, This is the place! Up here! In this building! This is where they are! That's where Popeek wastes our money! From the slant of the man's words, Walton instantly thought, Herschelite. He repressed his anger and, for once, decided to stay and hear the extremist out. He had never really paid attention to Herschelite propaganda. He had been exposed to little of it and he realized that now as head of popeek he owed it to himself to become familiar with the anti-popeek arguments of both extremist factions those who insisted popeek was a tyranny and the herschelites who thought it was too weak this popeek the little man said accenting the awkwardness of the word you know what it is it's a stopgap it's a silly soft-minded half-hearted attempt to solve our problems it's a fake a fraud a phony there was real passion behind the words walton distrusted small men with deep wells of passion he no more enjoyed their company than he did that of a dynamo or an atomic pile they were always threatening to explode the crowd stirred restlessly the herschelite was getting to them one way or another walton drew back nervously not wanting to be recognized and stationed himself at the fringe of the crowd some of you don't like popeek for this reason or for that reason but let me tell you something friends you're wronger than they are we've got to get tough with ourselves we have to face the truth popeek is an unrealistic half solution to man's problems until we limit birth establish rigid controls over who's going to live and who isn't we it was straight Herschelite propaganda, undiluted. Walton wasn't surprised when someone in the audience interrupted and growled, And who's going to set those controls? You? You trusted yourself to Popeek, didn't you? Why hesitate then to trust yourself to Abel Herschel and his group of workers for the betterment and purification of mankind? Walton was almost limp with amazement. The Herschelite group was so much more drastic in its approach than Popeek that he wondered how they dared come out with these views in public. Animosity was high enough against Popeek. Would the public accept a group more stringent yet? The little man's voice rose high. Onward with the Herschelites! Mankind must move forward! The equalization people represent the forces of decay and sloth! Walton turned to the man next to him and murmured, But Herschel's a fanatic. They'll kill all of us in the name of mankind. The man looked puzzled. Then accepting the idea, he nodded. Yeah, buddy, 
you know you may have something there that was all the spark needed walton edged away surreptitiously and watched it spread through the crowd while the little man's harangue grew more and more inflammatory until a rock arched through the air from somewhere whipped across the billowing u.n flag and cracked on the side of the building that was the signal a hundred men and women converged on the little man on the battered chair we have to face the truth the harsh voice cried then the flags were swept down trampled on flagpoles fell ringing metallically on the concrete the chair toppled the little man was lost beneath a tide of remorseless feet and arms a siren screamed cops walton yelled from his vantage point some thirty feet away and abruptly the crowd melted away in all directions leaving walton and the little man alone on the street a security van drew up four men in gray uniforms sprang out what's been going on here who's this man then seeing walton hey come over here of course officer walton turned his color down and drew near he spotted the glare of the ubiquitous video camera and faced it squarely i'm director walton of popeek he said loudly to the camera i just arrived here a few minutes ago i saw the whole thing tell us about it mr walton the security man said it was a herschelite walton gestured at the broken body crumpled against the ground he was delivering an inflammatory speech aimed against popeek with special reference to the late director fitzmaum and myself i was about to summon you and end the disturbance when the listeners became aware that the man was a herschelite when they understood what he was advocating they well you see the result thank you sir terribly sorry we couldn't have prevented it must be very unpleasant mr walton the man was asking for trouble walton said popeek represents the minds and hearts of the world herschel and his people seek to overthrow this order i can't condone violence of any kind naturally but he smiled into the camera popeek is a sacred responsibility to me its enemies i must regard as blind and misguided people he turned and entered the building feeling pleased with himself that sequence would be shown globally over the next news screenings every news blare in the world would be reporting his words lee percy would be proud of him without benefit of either rehearsal or phonemic engineering walton had delivered a rousing speech and turned a grisly incident into a major propaganda instrument and more than that director fitzmaugham would have been proud of him but beneath the glow of pride he was trembling yesterday he had saved a boy by a trifling alteration in his genetic record today he had killed a man by sending a whispering accusation rustling through a mob power popeek represented power perhaps the greatest power in the world that power would have to be channeled somehow now that it had been unleashed the stack of papers relating to the super speed space drive was still on his desk when he entered the office he had had time yesterday to read through just some of the earliest then the pressures of routine had dragged him off to other duties encouraged by fitzmaugham the faster-than-light project had originated about a decade or so before it stemmed from the fact that the ion drive used to travel between planets had a top velocity a limiting factor of about ninety thousand miles per second 
At that rate, it would take some 18 years for a scouting party to visit the closest star and report back, not very efficient for a planet in a hurry to expand outward. A group of scientists had set to work developing a subspace warp drive, one that would cut across the manifold of normal space and allow speeds above light velocity. All the records were here, the preliminary trials, the budget allocations, the sketches and plans, the names of the researchers. Walton plowed painstakingly through them, learning names, assimilating scientific data. It seemed that, while it was still in the early stages, Fitzmaugham had nurtured the project along with money from his personal fortune. For most of the morning, Walton leafed through documents describing projected generators, types of hull material, specifications, speculations. It was near noon when he came across a neatly typed note from Colonel Leslie McLeod, one of the military scientists in charge of the ultra-drive project. Walton read it through once, gasped, and read it again. It was dated 14 June 2231, almost one year ago. It read, Dear Mr. Fitzmaugham, I'm sure it will gladden you to learn that we have at last achieved success in our endeavors. The X-72 passed its last test splendidly, and we are ready to leave on the preliminary scouting flight at once. McLeod. It was followed by a note from Fitzmaugham to McLeod, dated 15 June. Dr. McLeod, all best wishes on your great adventure. I trust you'll be departing as usual from the Nairobi base within the next few days. Please let me hear from you before departure. Fitz M. The file concluded with a final note from McLeod to the director, dated 19 June, 2231. My dear Mr. Fitzmaugham, the X-72 will leave Nairobi in 11 hours, bound outward, manned by a crew of 16 including myself. The men are all impatient for the departure. I must offer my hearty thanks for the help you have given us over the past years, without which we would never have reached this step. Flight plans include visiting several of the nearer stars, with the intention of returning either as soon as we have discovered a habitable extrasolar world, or one year after departure, whichever first occurs. Sincere good wishes and may you have as much success when you plead your case before the United Nations as we have had here, though you'll forgive me for hoping that our work may make any population equalization program on Earth totally superfluous. McLeod Walton stared at the three notes for a moment, so shocked he was unable to react. So a faster-than-light drive was not merely a hoped-for dream, but an actuality with the first scouting missions a year absent already. He felt a new burst of admiration for Fitzmaugham. What a marvelous old scoundrel he had been! Faster than light achieved, and the terraforming group on Venus, and neither fact released to the public, or even specifically given to Fitzmaugham's own staff, his alleged confidence. It had been shrewd of him, all right. He had made sure nothing could go wrong. If something happened to Lang and his crew on Venus, and it was quite possible, since word of them was a week overdue, it would be easy to say that the terraforming project was still in the planning stages. In the event of success, the excuse was that word of their project had been withheld for security reasons. And the same would apply to the space drive. 
if mcleod and his men vanished into the nether regions of interstellar space and never returned fitzmaugham would not have had to answer for the failure of the project which as far as the public knew was still in the planning stage it was a double-edged sword with the director controlling both edges and now walton was in charge he hoped he would be able to continue manipulations with the aplomb worthy of the late director fitzmaugham the annunciator chimed dr lamar is here for his appointment with you mr walton walton was cut off guard his mind raced furiously lamar who the dickens oh that leftover appointment of fitzmaugham's tell dr lamar i'll be glad to see him in just a few minutes please i'll buzz you when i'm ready he hurriedly gathered up the space flight documents and jammed them in a file drawer near the data on terraforming he surveyed his office it looked neat presentable glancing around he made sure no stray documents were visible documents that might reveal the truth about the space drive send in dr lamar he said lamar was a short thin pale individual with an uncertain wave in his sandy hair and a slight stoop of his shoulders he carried a large black leather portfolio which seemed on the point of exploding mr walton that's right you're dr lamar the small man handed him an engraved business card t elliot lamar gerontologist walton fingered the card uneasily and returned it to its owner gerontologist one who studies ways of increasing the human lifespan precisely walton frowned i presume you had some previous dealings with the late director fitzmaugham lamar gaped you mean he didn't tell you director fitzmaugham shared very little information with his assistants dr lamar the suddenness of my elevation to this post gave me little time to explore his files would you mind filling me in on the background of course lamar crossed his legs and squinted myopically across the desk at walton to be brief mr fitzmaugham first heard of my work fourteen years ago since that time he's supported my experiments with private grants of his own public appropriations whenever possible and lately with money supplied by popeek naturally because of the nature of my work i've shunned publicity i completed my final test last week and was to have seen the director yesterday but i know i was busy going through mr fitzmaugham's files when you called yesterday i didn't have time to see anyone walton wished he had checked on this man lamar earlier apparently it was a private project of fitzmaugham's and of some importance may i ask what this work of yours consists of certainly mr fitzmaugham expressed a hope that some day man's lifespan might be indefinitely extended i am happy to report that i have developed a simple technique which will provide just that the little man smiled in self-satisfaction in short he said what i have developed in everyday terms is immortality mr walton the end of chapter seven of master of life and death by Robert Silverberg